Does self-governance work? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Jennifer Murtazashvili. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Jennifer Murtazashvili. Jennifer is director of the Center for Governance and Markets and associate professor at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh. Her research focuses on issues of self-governance, security, political economy, and public sector reform in the developing world. She is the author of Informal Order and The State in Afghanistan, which received the Best Book Award in Social Sciences by the Central Eurasian Studies Society and received honorable mention from the International Development Section of the International Studies Association. Her second book, Land, the State, and War, Property Institutions and Political Order in Afghanistan, is forthcoming. Jennifer has advised the United States Agency for International Development, the Afghanistan Research and Evaluation Unit, the World Bank, the U.S. Department of Defense, the United Nations Development Program, and UNICEF. She has also served as a U.S. Peace Corps volunteer in Uzbekistan. Jennifer, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks for having me. It's a huge honor to be here. And it's great to have you on. So Jennifer, we base each of our episodes on a question and go wherever the conversation and answers take us. Our question today is, does self-governance work? And I think a good place to start is right from the top before we get into some of your research on Afghanistan and and things like that. So what do you mean by self-governance? How do we frame our conversation today for our listeners? So I think, you know, in a very basic sense, right, self-governance means the right of individuals and communities to make decisions about the things that are most important for their lives. And uh, how this looks in in every context is really going to be different. So there's not one way to do self-governance. There's not one formula to make self-governance work and people's preferences uh, for where that, you know, the the scope of self-governance will also be different from context to context. And a lot of self-governance discussion seems to go to property and property rights as a base level for exploration and measurement. Why is that? Like, why does a lot of this conversation always going to come back to property and property rights? Well, I mean, property rights, it's sort of the the foundational value of of, of ownership, right? So uh, families invest in and what to own land. It goes back to sort of our basic needs as, as humans in our community. So land and land ownership and property, and whether that's, you know, land is, was one aspect of that. Uh, but I think that's so important for, you know, every family. It's something that unites every family and community around the world is this notion of property. And property does look different and land rights or property rights and, 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 and systems of ownership, of course, look very different. Um, in different contexts, but this notion of ownership is not something that's uh, that is quite universal. There's a common objection or a common case made that people suggest that um, you know, in in order, you know, for for property rights to exist, or or as you said, this is different property, and what we're talking about depends on on what culture we're in and things like that. But the idea of you know what's mine and yours, et cetera, to be in, enforced and properly regulated, if you will, there needs to be some sort of state or state apparatus governing this. So that's the case a lot of people make. Um, and of course, in your work, you refer to anarchy as ultimately a, a viable pos- uh, policy alternative in, in, in certain cultures. That or that is to say, not even a policy alternative, but just to let things alone. So can you elaborate on that a bit? You know, as I said, on both the one hand where 
I'm sure you run into this objection all the time. People flat out just assume that in order for anything to do with property rights, on the one hand, there needs to be a government or a central authority. And on the other hand, why do, why do you not think that's the case? Well, in order for there to be a right, so sort of the way that we define property rights in our work, that rights do come from the state in that sense, right? So you can't really have a property right without state enforcement of those things. So that we, we, we use other you know terminology to understand uh, those kinds of property arrangements that come from communities. And, uh, you know, in, in the case of ex- Afghanistan, which I've looked at quite extensively, the, the, the most of, there's lots of property conflict, but most of the property conflict is generated by the state. So this, if you're looking at who is grabbing land, it is the state. And this is not true of Afghanistan. It's true of many developing countries where people do not actually have land ownership rights. Uh, in many countries throughout the world, the state owns land. People can lease, you know, have leases from the state for 99 years or 100 years. But really, at the end of the day, the land doesn't belong to them. Um, and a, a, another common objection I hear to this is, well, Afghanistan must be different. Those people are so different. They can't pros- possibly believe in property and property rights and private property. That's capitalism. That's not Afghan. Well, Afghans actually have a very long history of private property rights um, and land ownership. Um, so, you know, even before um, in the 1970s, before this current conflict began, they looked at, uh, you know, patterns of land ownership and they had some of the most egalitarian uh, forms of land ownership in the region. Uh, and many, many people own land. And this was actually a consequence of the tribal system uh, that exists in parts of the country. So, uh, you know, there's a very robust system of private property that predated the state even. Uh, and this goes back to customary, uh, you know, forms of land tenure. But you, know, in addition to private property rights over land, there was also communal property rights, uh, communal systems of communal property over common pool resources. Pasture land, for example, is a very good example of that. Um, so you can, in, in one context, you can have different kinds of of ownership. And so, do you think part of the problem is when a lot of people, especially in like, I'll just say like, you know, North America, Canada, the US, for example, think of the idea of property rights, they're sort of grafting what they're used to, like here today as property rights, and they have a hard time connecting how other cultures can do things differently. So for example, as you said, people think like, I don't know, I'm, I'm just trying to, I'm making it up. But you know, some people think of, oh, a property right, you have you have a deed, and then that, that gets transferred. And there's lots of lawyers involved, usually. And then there's that, like, you know, people sort of graft that system that they think of onto other cultures and say, well, if that doesn't exist there, then therefore that's not property rights. Exactly. And, and you know, in Afghanistan is a great example is that there's a hugely complicated system of customary deeds and titles. And these customary deeds and titles are kept by communities. And the record keeping is, you know, immaculate. And sometimes, you know, the, the easiest solution to the current property conundrum is for the state to recognize the customary titling system. Um, but that is in conflict with the state, who is often quite predatory and wants the land that communities um, claim for themselves. So this is where you get, you know, a lot of tension, uh, uh, you know, along these lines. But the, the customary people do have things that often look very similar to what we have in North America, um, but they're not enforced by the state. They're enforced by non-state actors. And this is where it becomes, I think, very complicated because, you know, if we're going to talk about state building or state capacity, things that we thought, you know, coming from North America were so important for Afghanistan, 
uh, things that you would assume to be, you know, associate with core functions of the state are things that actually can be performed by third parties or community partners in, in places like Afghanistan. Right. And I think this is where in your work, too, you bring in this, this, this contrast. And I think it's on the same vein of what you're saying, this idea of like a, a central authority versus a polycentric authority. So that is to say that when you think of, for instance, just to coin it as you do, like anarchy as a policy alternative, let's say, or polycentric authority as, as, as an alternative for a culture, this isn't necessarily say that, you know, some people have images of like a free for all, but just because there's no central authority doesn't mean there isn't different centers of organization, com- uh, community problem solving, etc. Right. And I always should be absolutely clear about what we mean by anarchy and how, um, you know, this is a we're, we're talking about a book and, and some papers that uh, is about to come out that I've co-authored with Ilya Murtazashvili. And we're very careful in how we define anarchy is not the is is the absence of government government. But that doesn't mean the absence of rules. And so we ha- if we define anarchy as the absence of any rules, yes, of course, who would want that? But the absence of government does not necessarily mean the absence of rules. And in fact, what I found in Afghanistan is that the, the rules that are created by non-state actors uh, who are not just warlords, that's another thing, is we tend to think about non-state actors as the violent ones. There's many that are non-violent that are trying to figure out how to manage their lives on a day-to-day basis, how to solve problems, how to get things done. And uh, the rules are much more complicated and actually much more legitimate than the ones that come from the state. And the problem is the state building focuses on state-created law and making the state do more things and seeing society really as um, an obstacle to that. And so these rules that are created by society, they're messy, they don't look right, maybe sometimes they don't include women the way that we want, they don't always subscribe to the UN's sustainable development goals, right? So they don't look the way that we would, we would make them look, and so therefore they're bad. And therefore, they need to be, you know, eliminated in order for the state to consolidate itself. And this also goes back to, you know, theories we have in political science about state consolidation and and how states are formed and what states should look like. Um, And it's often this state formation process often looks like sort of a zero sum game, right, between the state and society, rather than a positive sum relationship. And that's really what we're encouraging people to do is through this lens of anarchy and this polycentric vision, is to see these customary systems of governance that exist in communities as assets for states, not enemies of it. Obviously, we've been touching on a couple times, and I want to dive into a little deeper now, like what, what you found in Afghanistan and how your research has gone in, in that country. But but before we get right, right into that, one more sort of framing question, which is that a lot of your research seems to be like... Uh, based on interviews and is, is ultimately qualitative rather than quantitative in nature. That is to say that, you know, you don't have a bunch of people running around trying to measure and tally, you know, certain things and put it all in a, in a graph. I mean, there is that the, that aspect of the of the research. But one thing I did notice is that the, the massive amount of qualitative research that you've done. So I want you to talk a bit about that and why you think that's actually a benefit and something that really adds to your research and provides a, a dimension that, for instance, quantitative purely might not. Because I found that very interesting when I was reading through your work. Well, thank you. I'm a big believer in both kinds of methods. I do both survey work. I do public opinion surveys, household surveys, but I also, you know, my real love is is qualitative methods and specifically um, interviews and, um, you know, ethnographic observations. Um, I can't do a lot of deep ethnography as I'd like to uh, these days, but um, 
you know, understanding societies, you have to travel there and understand the way, you know, that societies work if you're going to explain them. And there's a lot of navel gazing that goes on and there's a lot of reifying. You know, people, a lot of people celebrate anarchy, but have never lived in these kinds of situations where states are weak. And to me, we have to be very cautious in how we do this. Um, so my perspective on this doesn't really come from an ideological perspective. It really comes from one that's quite practical. Um, but, you know, my belief in, in sort of the, the methodology side is that I see a real, you know, comp, comp complementaries, complementarities, there's a better word, between qualitative and quantitative work. Um, you know, quantitative analysis can tell you what relationships are. You can do really rigorous field experiments that can, you know, that can show the impact of a program, but you'll never know why something works. And to me, the really big questions that are so interesting is why. And qualitative research really helps you get at those causal mechanisms, help you explain relationships that you might see between variables, um, and then might help you understand variables you, know, you might not even think about. It's the qualitative work that allows you to understand things that may not have even appeared on your radar before you did them. And that you think that you know something, and then you talk to people who are actually living the situation that you think is so important, and you end up being so wrong. And that's what I love is being wrong all the time in my assumptions. I'll go into a situation and think that I understand things. And then I'll talk to people and realize how much I don't know. And actually, let's get right into that. I think that's a great segue into, into a little more detail on your research in Afghanistan. So you've done work on property rights, organization, dispute resolution, all this great stuff comes up in, in the mass amount of work you've done in Afghanistan. Before we drill into very specific aspects of the research and, and specific questions and follow-ups I have, overall... When you set out to go to Afghanistan and do the research, what what were you aiming to do? Obviously, research changes and, and things happen and things unfold naturally at times. But but when you started this this whole process of your own research and your own thinking on Afghanistan, what were you going in to do? Uh, so it's funny. Um, I, I first went to Afghanistan. I think it was two thousand and five, uh, and you know prior to uh, I was in graduate school at that time. I was doing a PhD in political science at the University of Wisconsin. And uh, I had gone to graduate school after spending five years in Uzbekistan, which is next door to Afghanistan. Uh, and I was actually working, I did two years in the Peace Corps and then I did three years with the US Agency for International Development, uh, managing democracy and governance programs. And I was managing many aid programs at, that were looking working at the community level. Um, and I understood uh, the, the importance of community. I became very fascinated with this. And I was really interested to understand how aid programs could work with communities um, to, to promote different kinds of outcomes. Fast forward a couple of years, I thought I was going to go do write my dissertation on Uzbekistan. There was a political uprising in that country. I couldn't get back in. And um, I, I, I speak, uh, I, I was in the Peace Corps and I learned a dialect of Farsi that's spoken in Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, I've been following what was going on in Afghanistan. These are countries that are right next to each other. And so I started going to Afghanistan to see if a comparison was be possible between Afghanistan and its Central Asian neighbors. Uh, and I was really interested in looking at these aid programs, given that I used to work at aid organizations um, and looking at some of the innovative things that I thought was being done at, at the community level in terms of, you know, building uh, the state at the community level, building linkages between the community and the state. What I quickly realized when I began my research is I was asking the wrong question, is I thought aid 
because of the lens that I was using. So sort of where I say I, I, I discovered Hayek in rural Afghanistan. I thought aid was so important. That was the world I was living in. And then I realized when I was doing interviews with people that it was so, I was asking about aid, but aid was actually really tangential to their lives. I overemphasized its importance because of the question that I was interested in. Um, and then I realized that there's this whole system. I was all interested in governance and the role aid plays in that. But I realized that, that was a very small role. And there's a ton of governance that goes on outside of aid interventions and communities. And that's what I ended up capturing in my work when I first started going there in like 2005. Um, and I've done you know, a series of projects in Afghanistan since that time, but really centered on how communities govern themselves. Right? And, and then you know, to what extent does aid help or hinder that? Um, but that was really been the emphasis of my work. And so it's only by doing field work that I understood how wrong I was. Yeah. And, and that, that you talk about that lens that you had on to me. And that makes sense. Like you said, those around 2005. That's very con contextual for that time, especially post 9-11 sort of era when all the stuff in the Middle East was, I, I was going to say kicking off, but I'll say kicking off again because um, that goes in cycles. But um, but yeah, no, because, you know, that post 9-11 immediate after that time was basically on the one hand, there were there were wars to be fought and regimes to topple. On the other hand, aid to be given. That was sort of the paradigm. As you said, people weren't thinking of the kinds of things you were thinking of. So it's interesting to say that once you actually got there and into the field, you said like a whole other door sort of opened up in your mind about what's important to be thinking of when we look at these cultures. Yeah, and, and think them as quite capable right. rather than helpless. And I think that was sort of the lens I saw so many in the, the aid you know, world where I was working is really seeing communities as needing so much help. Of course, they it didn't mean that they didn't need assistance, uh, but not seeing them as helpless and, and really building on the dignity that they have. I thought was just so key and something that was really quite missing. Right. That's, that's I think that is quite key, right? Because even the people that are there to do good and the people who genuinely want to help others can still start from the first principle that they are either better or more capable in some way. And ultimately, you're going to help people in like the most downtrodden sense rather than helping people that just might be in a different cultural context. So let, let's now do an overview of what you, you we talked about why and how you sort of ended up looking at Afghanistan. Let's just give me sort of an overview, like walk, walk me and the listeners through what you found, especially in the rural areas of Afghanistan, when it comes to social organization and property and communal roles, just feel free to kind of unpack that for us, because this is in, in many different ways, quite foreign to people, especially with the, the, the very, um, the very close field work you did. So what did you find when you ended up in these rural areas as, as far as organization? Yeah, I found a very well organized society. And that was really in contrast to so many things that I had read uh, by most social scientists, by most journalists who describe the country as being you know, completely destroyed after 20 years of war and a tabula rasa. And so I think one of the contributions that I made, especially in my first book, which is called Informal Order in the State in Afghanistan, was really chronicling the way that communities returned to their villages after conflict. That Many of them were in Pakistan or in Iran or they were in other um, cities. And they returned to rural areas, you know, to, now that peace had, had uh, fallen upon the country. And um, many people had described how the customary system of governance had been wiped away due to, due to 20 years of war. What I found was that people quickly reconstituted these old systems. And that was really fascinating to me was that they use, sometimes they use new names to, to, to name their village governance system. Sometimes they reconstituted the old one. Um, but 
because people had this lens saying, oh, you know, they're not, they're not, they're looking for X, this old institution, it's not there anymore. Well, they're actually calling it something else and they're doing something else, but there were really incredibly complicated and legitimate forms of self-governance in communities that really, really surprised me. And this was very early on, you know, we're talking about 2004, 2005, that people started rebuilding these things and they began rebuilding the hearts of their communities. And in some cases, people didn't emigrate, but a lot of times these kinds of organizations went underground because communities were often targeted by the Taliban. Um, you know, if you look at Taliban assassinations in Afghanistan, often they'll go, they'll, they'll go after customary leaders, tribal leaders. Um, and so often we think in the West, we look at Afghanistan seeing the Taliban as tribals, right? And, and not understanding that it's actually the system of customary governance that is the biggest threat to the Taliban's leadership because it's a source of community authority that's so legitimate to people. That's something that they have built. It's not the state. It's something that comes from communities. And so this customary system governs villages, everything from dispute resolution to property, um, you know, property management um, to managing families and family disputes, um, and also prov provision of you know, small-scale public goods and, and water resource management, and in really, really complicated and beautiful ways of, of um, orchestrating community life. Right. I like, I like the way you put that a little earlier, too, when you said that, you know, especially when we look from our perspective in the West, you know, when there's a conflict in the Middle East, most people frame it as on ultimately like a conflict between two central authorities, right back to the one of the first things we were talking about, whereas it's either the Taliban trying to amass power or, or you, know, you know, against the government that's being established in Afghanistan or, or the Taliban or whatever force against whatever American forces there, or whatever the case may be, that's often the way it's framed. But in reality, as you said, there's this whole other hidden layer that we need to focus on too, which is there's also decentralized authorities that want probably nothing to do with either the Afghan state or the uh, Taliban, for example, which are people trying to centralize authority. Well, I, you know, I, I think that that's also sort of a misconception is that they didn't want to have anything to do with the state. And and this is, a, you know, a stereotype that I, uh, you know, not to beat you up on this, but it's a common one. No, no, please go ahead. Where we think of like this, this zero sum relationship between these customary systems and the state, and then you could never have a modern state because you have these archaic, medieval, tribal, you know, always I ho always hear people say Stone Age systems. And when I found that they're quite modern, they use, you know, they've updated the, what I call their institutional technologies. I, I found some communities that were electing their community elders through ballot boxes. Right. Right. So, um, and the problems that people face are quite contemporary. So they, they update the rules and how they solve problems to deal with them. This is where statistical analysis is really handy. So what I, what I was really puzzling with when I was doing some of this research, this was about 15 years ago, um, was you know, trying to understand this robust system and its relationship with the state. And what I found was that um, communities really, in, in many instances, had very productive and positive relationships with government authorities. But it the, the symbiosis occurred when government authorities respected the autonomy of communities to make decisions. And when those government bureaucrats, the district government officials weren't too corrupt. When there was a lot of corruption, and I actually found like measures of this, when I would go to government offices, I could see like if I went to a government office and saw that there was a lot of people 
outside, if it looked like it was an utter mess, that was a really good government. That was a good governor because people are spending their time to go see this person and talk to this person. And, and there's something that that person could offer to solve a dispute. There were other district centers where I'd go to that were just beautiful buildings, uh, completely empty. And to me, that was almost like a marker that this governor is corrupt. Right. There's no interaction. There's no interaction. And then it might look pristine and to an outsider, it looks well, well kept and orderly. Um, but it's actually quite the opposite. So then I did some statistical analysis. I looked at some uh, public opinion surveys in Afghanistan to understand, okay, what is the relationship between, you know, the strength of customary authorities and trust in the government? And is this zero sum? And I actually found that it's not. And this, I think, is like the big source of confusion we have about places like Afghanistan is that I found that when people have stronger support and have, um, more capable customary leaders, they're more likely to support the central government. They're more likely to support democracy. And I found they're more likely to support women's rights. That's really counterintuitive, right? Because we think the other way around, that when you have stronger traditional authorities, you're less likely to support the state, you're less likely to support women's rights, and you're less likely to support um, the government. Right. And on, but on that note, though, one thing I like that you stressed in one of the pieces I read was basically this idea that you want to be very careful and refer to and have people thinking of this idea that we are talking about customary processes rather than traditional processes. I thought that was a very good thing to hang your hat on. And one thing I read, because you said this idea of traditional sort of often connotes like people stuck in their ways, not dealing with progress and dynamism. It's basically this is the way it has to work. But in reality, although there may be some tradition in there, this idea of customary w- was very interesting to me that that these parts of traditions and parts of the way certain communities like to handle things are prepared and able to deal with society as it moves along, not just want to always stay back. So I thought that was an interesting paradigm you created that the idea of customary versus what we may think of as traditional. Right. And so word I stay away from is traditional. You know, sometimes to communicate, people say, what is a customer? Oh, the traditional leaders. Oh, okay. I know what that means. But I, I, I avoid the word uh, tradition in my work because, you know, this British uh, anthropologist, uh, fr- sorry, French anthropologist named Olivier Waugh, um, who was a famous Persianate, uh, you know, anthropologist of the Persianate world. He said, you know, this desire to, uh, he, he defined tradition as desire to go back to a frozen yesterday. And he says, he says, tradition is never a viable uh, political platform because you can never go back to tradition. You can never go back to a frozen version of yesterday. And that's where I thought, ah, what I'm talking about is custom because custom is sort of based in these ideas and notions of tradition, but they change over time. Customary law is something that's recognized in international law. It's something that's rec- we recognize in our own common law, right? The United States and Canada, we have aspects of, of um, customary law in our own legal systems. Uh, the entire, in the United States, the entire you know, basis of our criminal justice system is customary law. Right. Concepts like mens rea. So the, the custom, the customary system of law that we have evolves and changes over time. It's interpreted by courts, it changes. And that's how I think of this quote unquote traditional system in Afghanistan and other places. And we think of them as frozen and stuck. You know, the, the medieval tribal leaders stuck in the Stone Ages. It's far from the truth. People change their rules. They update their rules um, to suit their, you know, circumstances. And I think that's actually an excellent place to take our break. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Jennifer Murtazashvili today. 
The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Danny Leroy, Elizabeth Aragona, and Janet Bufton. Also, a special shout out to our summer fellow intern, Shal Marriott, who has been helping produce episodes with us this summer. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Jennifer Murtazashvili today. So, Jennifer, the first half was great. We were just getting into, um, you know, why and how you ended up looking at Afghanistan and doing your work there. And and we started unpacking some of the things you found there. And I want to continue on with that, especially since we were talking about one of the things really as um, communities and and, and, and customary law and, and dispute resolution, things like that. So I want to flesh that out further. In places like Canada and the United States, although we do have civil law and criminal law, a lot of people's picture of a dispute resolution or something being resolved is often, you know, someone broke a window, call the cops, and then that that whole system of law and order takes takes note, you know, or takes hold, I should say. One thing I found very interesting in the dispute resolution area of your work is that you went on to explain how there's different elements and different, for instance, respected people and key roles in a community that might be resolved in a dispute resolution, say, say over property. And and I don't have all, all of it in front of me right now, but there there's a there's a religious element and often a religious leader, a community representative, uh, other people that are respected for knowledge. Can you sort of paint a picture of what a dispute resolution in a community might look like? And of course, I want to say, disclaimer, obviously, I, I would never say to our listeners, this is what Afghanistan, quote unquote, is like. Obviously, there's different things in different regions. But generally speaking, can you get into some examples of things you found of, let's say we had a dispute over who owned a certain piece of property? What, what kind of thing would that look like? Uh, so if we had a dispute over you know, property, oftentimes it's between relatives, right? So that would actually be the first question is, you know, who is the dispute over? And if it's between relatives, often people will go to a local religious leader uh, to resolve this dispute. And, and one of the things that surprised me from my research in Afghanistan doing a lot of interviews was how many jokes people had about religious leaders. And it was a really common theme, right? That, uh, okay, so we go to a local mullah and the mullah, uh, you know, there's there's several that we can choose from and which one do we pick? And there's lots of jokes about bribing mullahs. There were so many jokes about, um, you know, a mullah is, uh, there, I heard this, this one several times in, in different iterations in villages that, uh, okay, there are several families in a village having a dispute, um, over you know something like property or inheritance, usually those are the ones that go to the religious leaders because that's governed by Islam, and so they'll go to a mullah, and the mullah is really busy because like five disputes happened in the village that night, and so he's walking around the village and he sticks his nose up in the air and he's smelling what people are cooking in each house, and so he's walking between the houses and he can't decide does he want you know uh, the rice dish or does he want the meat dish and he's walking and he can't decide and he can't decide. And finally he decides what house, you know, food he wants. And then he shows up and they've, they've all eaten dinner. Uh, So he's too late. Right. So there's some kind of iteration. The story here is that your religious leaders are not your most pristine and you know, that uh, money plays roles in all of this. Uh, But, but, uh, what I t- but there is also norms about money and how much money you can give. There's expectations, of course, but there's also norms of fairness, so that people can take a payment for something. But there's a, a no, you know, rosie. There's a, a, a term that I heard a lot. It's just like they can't take too much to make you feel bad. 
And so it's almost like this payment for service, not a bribe, which is a very different thing. And so once it becomes too much, then it becomes extractive and predatory. Um, but what, you know, what something I would find is that in a community, and you know, the explanation as to why the system seems to work so well is that power isn't concentrated into hands of one individual. Right. So I'm actually doing some comparative research right now, looking at many different countries and trying to understand a range of customary systems around the world. And because the Afghanistan case is really interesting and unique. And I think that um, you know, the inability, we could talk later about you know, the state building and efforts and its inability to come to terms with these kinds of organizations. But what I found in a village is that power wasn't concentrated in the hands of a tribal elder or a tribal leader or something like that. And in fact, in Afghanistan, there's no such thing as a tribal leader because tribes in Afghanistan are egalitarian. They're called acephalous, according to anthropologists. The, the Pashtun tribes do not have leaders. There's no hereditary leadership. They're acephalous. They're headless. And so um, in a community, you have the community councils, which are typically called shuras or jurgas. You have religious leaders called mullahs, which you know, I've talked about and described. And then you have this other body, which I found really interesting. They're called maliks, usually. And a malik is a person who is the leader of a community, but not a chief. They're leader primus inter pares, meaning that they're first among equals. This person is selected by the community to represent community interests to the outside world, but it is not a leader of the community. It's a, it's a, it's a leader in the sense that the people trust this person to speak on its behalf, but it cannot command, it cannot rule, it cannot tell people what to do. Um, but the person is usually selected because they come from a respected family, they're literate, that becomes very important because you're dealing with government officials. So you have to trust that this person can deal with the government on your behalf. Um, and so in many, many districts I would go to, I would ask district government officials, okay, how do you rule your district? You are the lowest level of um, formal government in right. this country. Below you is hundreds of villages. How do you deal? Oh, I deal with my maliks. But they're not your maliks. It's the community's maliks. So this was actually a very well-organized system. The maliks would meet with the district governor every Saturday, which is the first day of the working week. And district governors would assemble these customary leaders. Sometimes they'd even give them stamps. Right. It was this really like intricate, complicated, almost formal system that was completely informal. And, 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 and the, way, the reason this customary system works, I argue, is that because power wasn't concentrated into the hands of one person, it was diffuse in a community. And so power is separated among these three different bodies, but not only is it separated, there are checks and balances between them. So these checks and balances create constraints on leaders that prevent them from engaging in predatory behavior. Right. And, and if I'm understanding what I was reading from your research correctly, what you're saying there is not only is there the, the power diffused and separated among different communities, but there are also systems of sort of like like federative powers, like federation, where people can get together and represent their communities and talk about larger like territorial issues that do affect each of their individual communities and so forth. Yeah. And, and, and this was so intricate, so complicated, so legitimate. And it was like a parallel system to what 
the formal system on paper was. And at what point, and because you, you, you uh, correctly and corrected me earlier, because I phrased it wrong when I was going too fast there, that, you know, this isn't to say all of the system and all the things we were talking about never connects up with the state or the central authority. At what point would something escalate or connect with? And how does that happen since we've talked about this robust customary system underneath? So there's a demand, right? So anarchy is good to a point, right? But then there, there are issues that people just can't solve on their own. What if you have a dispute between several villages? Okay, if between the two villages, three villages, you can solve things. When it becomes much larger in scope and scale, harder to solve things on their own. This is where you know a third party becomes really important. But there's other demands that people have, like healthcare. Healthcare is something that people know they need. But it's really hard to provide on their own, given right. this you know, level of education, economic development. You know, so this is where the state becomes really crucially important for providing healthcare services. Um, so it's the limits of what communities can do on their own. And so that's you know what I what I argue is that the scope of the state should be is to really diagnose what are the limits of self governance, and then where can the state begin. Uh, the state should begin only at those places where community self-governance collapses, and and people can tell you where that is, and that that's going to and that's you know it's going to depend in different places. It's going to look different, um, but healthcare is obviously a, a big part of that. Um, education, you know, lots of demands, but also security and defense. Um, this is where there was a demand for the Afghan National Army, right, to protect people, to protect foreign borders, uh, to keep insurgents out. People could do it individually inside of their communities. Um, but this is really a much larger scale issue. And another thing I want to kind of bring into what you're saying, and you can connect the dots for me, is that, you know, from what you're saying, it seems like this isn't the only way this isn't only the way things simply work in these places and villages that you found in Afghanistan. It also produces results people do prefer and tend to actually speak highly of in, in many cases, not all, of course. But to follow up on that, there's this quote here that's interesting that I want to bring in, and, and it's from one of your writings here, and it says, In the hundreds of interviews in rural Afghanistan, informants rarely mentioned turning to courts to resolve land conflicts. One of the few examples where individuals mentioned using formal co courts involved two wealthy landowning families. And so this was very interesting to me because it sort of speaks to this idea of, you know, the, the sense of formalized justice or going to the state. In some areas specifically, it has to do more with like wealth and privilege rather than actually the way, if you will, the every person would actually be living and dealing with things on a day-to-day -day basis. Or did I misread that? No, at the, at the everyday basis, there is t people are terrified of courts. And so, you know, I could talk about some of the implications of our work on property rights is that, um, I would, I would ask many district government officials, they would say, oh, you know, these two families, they came to me with a property dispute. And I said, you solve it on your own. And if you can't solve it on your own, I can help you. Um, and I can help you find a solution. And if you're not happy with the solution that I give you, well, I'll send you to the courts. And the threat of the courts is what got people to compromise. Right. And so because the courts are notoriously the most corrupt public body in the country. Right. And, and so govern, and this was really what just sort of shocked me, really upended my understanding of like, this is a government official telling me who's telling communities to use customary law to solve disputes, right? He's saying, don't use the government, use your own means to solve your problems, because we all know that the government is much more corrupt than you. Right. 
And to me, that was like, ah, so I could see what a good governor, a good governor was one who would push things back to communities and help communities solve problems, rather than someone who would help people adjudicate things by state law. And to me, this just really, it, it took me a long time to figure this out, that what the role of government officials is so multi-layered, and, but it made them more effective because you saying, look, I'm protecting you. I'm protecting you from this thing, this court monster. And the court monster, you know, this is, you know, Afghanistan, that the courts is actually a highly centralized court system. They actually, I'm working on a book right now on Soviet legacies in Afghanistan. And one of the things we look at is, uh, you know, the system of government is hyper-centralized. And that actually explains the lack of legitimacy of the government in many cases. Even good governors couldn't incorporate these customary leaders into what they were doing because these governors had absolute, had very little discretion to do anything. They were agents of the central government. They were not selected by their communities. Um, often they would just come to take bribes because they were rotated from one district to another. And uh, But good governors understood that they had to, if they wanted to stick around and stay alive for a long time, they had to work with the communities. And, you know, that, that, um, involved making good relations with them and understanding how they could thrive. Right. And that goes back to what you're saying before about that sort of the feedback process. And you brought the sort of, and I'm using it as a visual metaphor in my head now, but what kind of offices were like actually looking like they're, they have some sort of place in that feedback loop rather than one that's nice and pristine that might be good for an ambassador tour, but not necessarily actual community action. So I, I think that's very interesting that you note that there's sort of like back to the polycentric theme and the plurality of like different systems in different places. Like you said, there's sort of like a feedback and interaction between between them and not necessarily um, sort of the tentacles or roots directly in and interfering and always, always assuming they have the authority. I think that's key. Yeah. And that was really, I mean, if, you, if people ask, you know, what has been the problem in Afghanistan, it's that these communities have not had any role in who governs them over the past 20 years. We talk about Afghanistan and protecting the gains and protecting democracy, but democracy has been something that's been isolated to electing a national parliament and a president at the national level and, and Afghanistan's greatest wealth is its communities and enormous vibrancy. And there was enormous support for democracy and the international project and even US troops, which really surprised me um, in villages throughout the country. And a lot of that goodwill has been squandered, unfortunately. Right. And actually connects very nicely to something else I want to bring in, which was this idea of, you know, what, especially in, in the United States, Canada, places like that, we mean when you say like, when we say things like, oh, like democracy or this institution should be established and protected. Often when there are the the outsides and experts, whether it's, you know, uh, certain NGOs or just even just direct aid organizations, it seems to me from what I've been reading from your work and, and our conversation today, it's exactly what you're saying there. What they're often talking about is protecting or supporting sort of like this ideal top down mechanism. If we only administered things like this and protected that, we'd have order rather than trying to, as you said, preserve and even understand the stuff coming from the bottom up. So that, that's very fascinating to me that the perspective is very much top down versus bottom up. And everybody talks about top, bottom up. I mean, every, who doesn't like bottom up, right? But doing bottom up is, is really hard and it actually means giving up power. Right. And I think that was really the story of Afghanistan. The donors didn't want to give up power, really. They would do these sort of slapstick, you know, uh, 
community-driven development projects and give, you know, I would call it was like faux community participation. Oh, let's give the community some money and they could do a project and they can decide what the money goes to. Okay, that's nice. People like that. I mean, they like having some say over their infrastructure, but that's not say over their government, right? That's not say over their budget. That's not say over who governs them. And often, um, you know, these donors would confuse their kind of community development work for actual political decentralization. And, and like we said, I like that you said that's exactly true, right? People like to pay lip service to like market mechanisms, bottom up, all that great stuff. But when it comes down to it, there's a lot of practical implications. As you said, not only is it accepting that there is some sort of loss of power and influence from a central authority, but it's also accepting a level of pluralism and plurality between different systems. Like not every village is going to, as you're saying, solve everything in the exact same way. And people that often have more of a central authority sort of look and way of looking at things in their head that 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 even there is hard to accept even if they're going to delegate power that's one thing but just the idea there might be a discrepancy between two communities of exactly how they handle something that that often very very much scares the, the very rationalist mind if you know what i mean like people that want to see everything verticalized and this is the way we do things from top down right and who, who wanted that more than anything was like the united states and nato i mean although they talked about democracy and i don't mean to sound like a there's no nothing conspiratorial here uh but you know it's how you diagnose the problem of state building this goes back to sort of these political science theories i mentioned when you diagnose the problem of state weakness is the lack of weberian you know how do how do we define a strong state it goes back to weber which is this notion of um, a monopoly and legitimate use of violence so when you diagnose state weakness as the absence of that um, and the need to develop that monopoly then you're really going to double down on centralizing authority, achieving that monopoly and the use of force. And that's what state building became, was taking all, you know, how do we disarm the warlords? How do we create some kind of uniformity? And this, this barbarian ideal really drove uh, the international community to uh, really double down on this um, notion of like unity of command, right? So everybody wanted unity of command. Uh, the international community, you know, they're, they're supporting this government that they want to solidify and unify and they're giving money to. So how are you going to oversee money if it's going to all these disparate sources? Uh, if you decentralize it, God knows where it's going to go. We're going to uniform and oversee it. And that'll be better for everybody and make things easier for us. And then if you're an Afghan leader, if you're Hamid Karzai, if you're Ashraf Ghani, what do you want? You want centralized power. Oh, boy, do you want centralized power, right? Because what you're worried about are rivals. You're worried about rivals for your authority. And, and, and I'm not talking about the Taliban. I think one of the biggest challenges, I, actually, I think Karzai did this much better than his uh, his uh, uh, predecessor. Uh, no, successor. <laughs> Sorry, Ashraf Ghani um, has really gone after, um, rather than making a deals with these warlords or other rivals for power, he's really gone after them and sought to dethrone them and eliminate them. And that's creating huge problems for him now um, as we're facing a resurgent Taliban. And as, as people sort of piece together this picture in their head, especially if they haven't been uh, ex uh, exposed to it before when they're thinking of how these arrangements work and these systems play off each other, I'm glad you mentioned the sort of warlord, war, warlord point because I read that in, in some of your writing too. And I, I want to dive into it a little further because I think a lot of people might think, okay, they, they understand what you're saying. There's the state and it does its thing up there. And then you have the different communities and, and, and customs. And that that governs often villages, but won't that just sort of um, dissolve or uh, be uh, vulnerable to sort of the warlord politics? And one thing that I 
a sentence that I really like that you wrote is I don't have it exactly in front of me, but I remember it some being something along the lines of people need to understand that that sort of level of politics and that's a reality kind of almost sits above and in between that it, it, it often or that, that is to say warlord politics it often de- deals with a different level of power. You don't often find it in this one village where someone's sitting in there and share like I'm a warlord now. It's it's sort of like a different beast unto itself. Did I read that correctly? Yeah, and and there's you know warlords have to make deal with these communities as well and jockey for their uh you know support and sometimes that support is really easy to gain because it's you know sometimes the warlords it's based on um and i would say quote unquote warlords because warlords are really complicated um who they are and what they are and what they do and if you look at some of the most um uh, a colleague of mine, Tapali Mukhopadhyay, she's written a brilliant book on warlord governors in Afghanistan. Um, it really unpacks how uh, warlords are complicated figures. And some of the best governed provinces in Afghanistan were governed by warlords, quote unquote warlords. That um, They had legitimacy, They were, but they were a threat to the central government because they had their own bases of uh, autonomy. And rather than seeing them as, as rivals for power, I think as the current president has, Ash, uh, Hamid Karzai was actually much better able to accommodate them into the government and was able to, to walk that line. Now, this upset some people. Um, you know, human rights organizations say, oh, these ruthless warlords, you're bringing them into government. But on the other hand, you have to understand their basis of legitimacy is, you know, one person's warlord is another person's savior. And communities have very, these are people who protected them during uh, these difficult times of conflict. And the current president of Afghanistan has really tried to undermine them as much as he can. But now that we're watching so much of Afghanistan fall to the Taliban, uh, these warlord networks are trying to um, regenerate themselves with the government's encouragement. So it may be the fact that these these very warlords who the central government's been trying to weaken, and many people have spent more time trying to weaken than actually weaken the Taliban, um, they may be the key to the survival of the central government. Right. And that's another, back to what we're saying about perspectives before, that's another interesting point to bring in, right? The outsider might say, okay, the government and at this state level, this the central authority level, by doing X, Y, and Z, you are legitimizing this warlord or legitimizing this authority. But on the other hand, you bring up an excellent point, which is to think, well, where, forget about that for a second, where, if any, is there legitimacy coming from the bottom up for these warlords? Whether it's co- correct or not, it's still important to understand where that's coming from. Otherwise, you're, you're still doing your view from the top down, trying to organize things again, not understanding the nature of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's... Uh... Um, it's, it's so complicated and it's so easy for everyone to have all the right answers. And I think that's why you know, the field work and, and asking questions and being wrong is so important. There's so much certainty that comes with foreign policy discussions these days. And, um, I just wish we'd be a little bit, uh, more humble as we approach these questions. And as, as, as our time does wind down here, I just want to end off on a bit back to the sort of the concepts and theoretical note before we go to the formal wrap up. One thing I noted because I liked it, it was it was in a chart in one of the pieces I read. You were talking about, you know, getting away from this idea of this authority grants this sort of rights and so on and so forth. You said, let's break down like, you know, what, what property rights are and what they mean and what it means to have a robust system. And you sort of talked about things like if the system, whether it's centralized or not, based on customs or not, uh, you know, can provide and it has an administrative capacity, an adjudicative capacity 
can bear the cost of conflict resolution, you know, can deal with the constraints and has a form of legitimacy. Whatever that system is, you have to call that a robust system of property rights. And what was interesting to me is when you went through that chart, I think there was two of them. One was how people viewed the government as actually providing that and the other, their customary traditions. And at the end of the day, you were saying, whatever you want to think of property rights, these things have been provided by a polycentric system in these areas. So that was fascinating to me that you were saying we should think, if I read that correctly again, of property rights with these features, not just who's giving what and saying what to do. Exactly. And that's where we sort of we open up, we call the black box of the property system to try to understand what, what does a property system do? Right. And, and in order for it to be effective, it has to do these things rather than focusing on who should be doing it, what should they be doing and who is actually doing it and who is doing it much more effectively. And that allows us to do comparative institutional analysis and actually compare you know, the customary system in the state. It allows us to compare customary system and warlords. So when you break things down along the different dimensions of you know, what, 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 what does a property regime look like? Then you begin to understand a little bit more why things work the way they do and more accurately diagnose what doesn't work. And for my part, I was more than happy to see in the first paragraph of one of these is people need to take anarchy more seriously as a policy alternative. From my perspective, I was happy to see that because I agree with yes. that. Right. But, you know, anarchy sort of properly understood in, in sort of the way Peter Leeson um, is that anarchy here is not the absence of rules, but it is a, is a pretty clear property regime. And so you have clear enforcement authority, you have clear adjudication, um, you have clear delineation of uh, the people have very complicated ways of determining whose land belongs to who. Um, go to communities, they have maps on the ground that they lay out and they put their thumb stamps on it. And everybody agrees that this is our deed. Um, so uh, this is our, this is the plot that belongs to us. And so you have this one map that belongs to the entire community it becomes a, a communal deed because everybody's plot is sort of mapped along it. Um, and, you know, I had friends who were trying to, who got satellite images uh, from Department of U.S. Department of Defense and got them into communities for the first time. Communities could see like aerial views of their villages and they could mark out, okay, this was my land, this is yours. And everybody shake hands and that became the community's deed, right? That was the property record for the community. That's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and, and these were Afghans who were doing this. So, um, very interesting, very interesting, very creative. And that's what I just want people to, there's so many stereotypes about Afghanistan. And, and, and you know, one of the, the, some of the rhetoric I don't like is this, you know, protect the gains and if the U.S. leaves, all of this will be gone. And we're focusing on urban women and, um, you know, the nonprofit sector and the media. And, and of course, there's, there has been much gained. Uh, but over the past 20 years, a lot has been lost as well. This, this, War has ravaged rural areas. People have lost so much, um, and it has been just very, very difficult. But the, the gains—they're there, not just in the cities, they're not just with the urban women. The gains are throughout society. And if we look in Afghanistan, you know, so many people paint these stereotypes of a place that just wants to live in the Stone Ages. I hear this time and time again, rather than seeing a really complicated situation where. Over the past 20 years, people have not had their voices heard at all. And an important an important point to remember is that they are ultimately people just like us do, doing their thing. So it's, it's not that hard for us to actually put on our empathy and sympathy shoes, especially in the Adam Smith sense, and basically be like, hey, like, you know, there's probably some commonalities there. It's not as foreign as we think for, at that base level. There's people just trying to live their lives. People trying to live their lives with dignity and creativity. 
right? And optimism for the future and people who care about their children and want their children to get educated and they want their girls to get educated. A lot of times the reason girls don't get educated is because parents protect them because there's violent conflict taking place. There's insecurity and they don't want to send their girls to school. So our, our time has pretty much wound down here. I think it was a very fascinating conversation. So in each episode, I want to make sure the guest ultimately has the last word to, you know, put a finer point on the conversation, bring it full circle to our main question. So, so let me officially ask you to end things off here today. What do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether self-governance work and your work in Afghanistan? In other words, if you wanted to leave someone in, in everything we've talked about with one or two or a few takeaways, what would those ultimately be out of this conversation? Appreciate human creativity. Appreciate the creativity that people bring, you know, the, the artisanship. Yeah, that was something that Eleanor Ostrom talked about, the craftsmanship that people bring to their communities. And even if it's in the places as exotic as sounding as Afghanistan, um, that we really need to take communities seriously. And that's it. And whether, you know, no matter where we are. I think that's an excellent place to leave it then. Jennifer Murtazashvili, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks for such thoughtful questions. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and special episode producer, Shal Marriott. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You can check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.